Hi, I'm Rod Levy. I'm a partner at HSF and I'm here today talking to... Hi, you got Jason Jordan here, uh, Senior Associate at HSF. And Sam Kings. Good on you. Yeah, good on you. Also HSF, Senior Associate. Thanks. And we're all M&A lawyers here. And uh, today we're going to talk about the Hellscope transaction, uh, which has just been completed. Um, and it's a really, it's a fascinating transaction. It's really three transactions in one, I think. That's how I think of it. There's a scheme of arrangement, there's a takeover bid, and there's a property transaction. Yeah, that's right, right. I think, and from my perspective, it's been one of the most complicated transactions that I've worked on in my career. And at $4.5 billion equity value, it's one of the biggest transactions uh, in the market recently. Yeah, I agree with that, those sentiments. I think today we're going to try and focus on, you know, a couple of the, the interesting issues that we identified during the deal and, and sort of run through those. Yeah, okay. So where do we start? I guess I guess we start with the initial approach, uh, which was made by uh, BGH. BGH put together a consortium and approached the company in um, April um, 2018. Um, an offer offering to buy the company for two dollars thirty six a share, and they'd put together a consortium which included a number of investors. Most importantly, included Aussie Super, uh, which was the largest shareholder in the company. And between them, the consortium had uh, just over fifteen percent of the issued shares. Yeah, that's that's right, Rod. Uh, certainly, the largest shareholder in the company, and the timing of the proposal was interesting as well, being just before Anzac Day. That's right, it was, and we you know, did a bit of work on Anzac Day. Thanks for reminding me of that. Uh, and you know, what, what, one of the, the interesting thing that, uh, and it sort of drove a lot of the thinking on this deal, was that the consortium arrangements between the BGH members included exclusivity provisions, which were, I think, unu- very unusual in this market and I think unprecedented. And essentially, what's relevant for us today is that they agreed uh, that they would all... Uh, uh, support the consortium's proposal, and they would vote against any other proposal, even if it was uh, at a higher price. Um, so there was no fiduciary out, and so they were they were really saying um, that they were they were really trying to corner the market in the company, I suppose. And I think you know at the time of putting forward that proposal, they would have thought that the price and also the combination of, of that arrangement had essentially given them a, a fair head start over anyone else who might who might want to have a crack as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, another interesting aspect of, of that proposal and those arrangements from a disclosure point of view is because of those arrangements, they would have to put out a notice to the market. And as a result, as a, acting for a target company, that required the target to disclose a proposal, which ordinarily, if it was confidential, they would not necessarily do. That's right. So we came out with an announcement um, two days later, day after Anzac Day, um, and uh, so everything was out in the public domain. Um, the first thing for a target board to do after receipt of a proposal is to consider whether or not to engage with the, with the bidder. Um, and so that uh, that occurred over the next few weeks after that. Um, and during that time, uh, another bidder approached the company, which was um, uh, Brookfield, and they were proposing a higher price. They proposed $2.50 per share, 
Um, and they had a, another provision in their proposal, didn't they, Jason? Yeah, they did, Rod. And that sort of provision was referred to as a level playing field condition. And that essentially was that a requirement that HealthScope as a target would not grant due diligence to any bidder if that bidder had an agreement to vote against the competing proposal, essentially the, to try and deal with the, the arrangements that Ozsuper and BGH had in place. Yeah, so they were, they were trying to bust apart the consortium's um, competitive position. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so the, the, anyway, what happened, the board rejected both proposals. They said both of them undervalued the company and they didn't like the complexity and the conditions that the bidders were trying to impose anyway. So, so that was the end of uh, phase one of the deal. Um, about five months later, in about October 2018, BGH came back. Um, at that stage, the HealthScope business, well, the share price at least, had declined. Uh, BGH came back and had the same price, the same consortium, um, but they had an extra element this time around. They had the, the next largest shareholder in the company, Elliston Capital, um, uh, supportive, and they made a public statement to the effect that they would vote in favour of a of a deal at two thirty six, and they wanted um, they wanted HealthScope to engage with the bidder and grant due diligence. Yeah, I think that's right, Rod. I mean, the pressure on on HealthScope was really dialed up second time around when they came back in October. That's right. Um, so the uh, as the board was considering what to do, um, they they were also thinking about uh, getting a rival bidder, and of course Brookfield was the obvious one. Brookfield's interest hadn't hadn't waned, and um, they managed to come up with a a a, a new deal structure. Uh, and the and the deal structure involved a um, a higher priced um, proposal for a scheme and a lower priced takeover bid. Yeah, that's right, right. I think that's only the second time we've seen a scheme and a takeover bid concurrently from the outset. I think the last one was back in 2010. Um, quite quite complicated. So higher price scheme, lower price takeover bid. The takeover bid would only be relevant to the extent that the scheme was to fail and also included a 50% minimum acceptance condition. Yeah, so, so this is, this, I think this is the key learning from the whole deal, really. I mean, there's, there's a lot of issues, but for me, this was, the, this was really the deal structure that unlocked the value for HealthScope shareholders. So, um, so, the, the, so we'll just go over that. Uh, again, so our listeners can understand it and take it in. So, so the Brookfield proposal was a scheme of arrangement um, which was priced at um, two dollars fifty eight and a half, which included a, a dividend which was about to be paid. So it was two fifty eight cash under a scheme. Um, there was an alternative uh, that shareholders could also potentially take up. Uh, equity in the in a bid vehicle and maintain their interest in HealthScope. Um, and if the scheme failed, as Jason just said, uh, uh, there would be a takeover bid at a slightly lower price. The lower price was two forty eight and a half. That's right. Um, and that was subject only to a fifty percent minimum acceptance condition. So that that dynamic really meant that. Um, 
that the, the Aussie Super, the pressure was on Aussie Super. Aussie Super was then the kingmaker. Aussie Super could then either decide to support the uh, Brookfield proposal and take cash or or roll into shares in the bid vehicle and maintain their interest. So that would give them the same outcome as, or pretty much the same outcome as a member of the BGH consortium. Or failing that, if they didn't support the scheme, and bear in mind their 15% would be pretty determinative of the outcome, they could vote against it, but then uh, uh, control could pass under the takeover bid and they could be locked in in a in a as a minority in Hellscope, continuing as a listed company, so so the idea there really was that it would be it was thought it would be irrational for Aussie Super to have that last outcome. So the pressure was on them to either better the scheme price or support the scheme, and that was thought to be the most likely outcome. And just on that, right? I think. The, it's also relevant to note that the stub equity option was only available under the scheme. So to the extent that the BJH Oz Super Consortium was interested in retaining that economic interest that you mentioned, that was a scheme-only outcome. So again, incentivising perhaps people to sort of push for that scheme solution and outcome rather than holding out for a takeover. Yeah, so, so that's right. So, um, so that was the deal structure um, proposed. And it was it's quite an, it's, as Jason said, it's 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 never been done before in this market. There have been concurrent bids and schemes on on maybe one occasion, but not quite in this scenario. And it was really meant to snooker the the uh, BGH consortium and make them, you know, to diminish their 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 their, their position. Um, by this stage, BGH had also bought some additional shares and they held 19% of the company, which is a pretty strong position. Yeah, that's that's right, right. I think you were saying at, at 15%, that, that vote can be really determinative in a scheme. Certainly at 19%, with usual voter turnout, that can really, that can really make the deal. Yeah. So um, HealthScope Board uh, was happy with this proposal. So we signed up a a document with the Brookville called a process deed and we committed to give them due diligence information for a period of time on an exclusive basis and we also agreed to pay a work fee uh, of $30 million which would be triggered in certain events mainly if Hellscope reneged and ultimately didn't support the proposal that uh, Brookville put or uh, in the event that there was a higher bid emerge. So Brookfield would have been protected um, in those events. Uh, so, so Sam, what happened then? So we, so we did a lot of work to get this done. Meanwhile, there was a property dimension. And Sam, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, I do. So I think, step back slightly, in 2018, Hellscope had been independently looking at Know, perhaps restructuring its property arrangements and part as part of that something that had been investigated was the potential to to move the properties out into a sale and leaseback facility of 49 51% arrangement so that had been something the market was aware of and a, a potential step that Hellscope was going to take Brookfield as part of its proposal said you know they were interested in a essentially a property transaction component 
and their proposal wasn't a 49-51%. It was an entire, a sale of the entire property portfolio um, and a lease back of those same facilities so that they could continue to be operated as hospitals by the business. The parties ran a concurrent and independent um, sale process effectively and out of that process, two potential buyers of the property portfolio were identified to two North American entities, um, MPT, Medical Property Trust, and also um, Northwest. And, and Sam, this sale and leaseback process, the, we're talking a pretty sizable transaction, aren't we? Yeah, so it, it was about $2.5 billion worth of value. So, you know, in the context of the overall transaction, it, it is, you know, very material. And I think, interestingly, um, Jason, you might just sort of mention how that ties in with the Brookfield consideration that they were prepared to offer under their transaction and how that would work. Yeah, for sure. So on this, in the scheme scenario, we're talking about $4.5 billion worth of equity. So at $2.5 billion, that's a, that's a significant component of the total consideration, which is being funded by the, the property transaction. In the context of the takeover as well, there was also, it's obviously a significant component of the funding. The takeover also had a capital return and dividend component, which um, is reasonably unusual from a takeover point of view. Um, not, we don't normally see that sort of stuff, but was was clearly a significant reason and driver behind the ability to fund that takeover. And that capital return was subject to shareholder approval. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well. Yeah, at the you know at the scheme meeting, sorry, at a, a meeting immediately following the scheme meeting. Yeah. So. So let me just understand that. So, so what we're saying is that there was, there was, as part of making the economics of the deal work or to improve the economics, the idea was to sell the property um, but not wait until Brookfield got control and then sell it. The idea was to sell the property and get the proceeds in um, so those proceeds could be used to pay the Hellscope shareholders the consideration under the overall deal. So that increased the the work and the and the difficulty of of the transaction because everything was concertina down into one process. And it also Rod, you know, some structuring factors came into play as well around, you know, making sure that the right entities were party to the arrangement, um, you know, to ensure that there wasn't the requirement for a shareholder approval. Um, under the listing rules for a disposable to a, a disposal of the property to a related party, so the transactions were direct between the property acquirers and Hellscope to avoid avoid that being an issue. Yeah, that's right. Because yeah, that's right. And so just to elaborate on that for our listeners, so normally if uh, if the if the bidder lines up a a purchaser for an asset, and that purchase will take place after the after control passes, there's a great risk that the purchaser is regarded as an associate of the bidder and therefore under the listing rules a vote of independent shareholders is required and that uh, had that been required here would have frustrated the structure so it was very important to make sure that Hellscope was the was dealing arm's length with the property purchases now one of those purchases northwest uh, had an interest in shares too yeah, they did, Rod. Uh, so Northwest entered into a share forward back in, in May, so shortly after BJH initially made its proposal. And that share forward essentially was a right for Northwest to acquire shares from Deutsche, the counterparty, at a future date. And that right to acquire shares could be accelerated in the event of a control transaction. So they could bring forward the time in which they could acquire the shares. 
at the time in which they announced the share forward, Northwest were pretty public and pretty open in, in saying that they were entering into this agreement to, to get a seat at the table and, and see whether or not they could potentially acquire the property. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so, so where were we on the story? We're talking about the, the deal. We went through the process deed. Uh, we signed up a, a, a formal formal documentation with all the parties on I think the first of February. At that stage, there was a slight revision to the price um, to be offered. Uh, so it came down to two dollars fifty under the scheme, including the dividend. Uh, and two dollars forty under the takeover, also including the dividend. Um, and from then on, it was a matter of trying to implement it, implement the deal. And what? Yeah, I agree yeah. with that. I think on the implementation piece, there's a very important component of that, and that is the disclosure piece and how what is um, you know a very complicated arrangement was presented to Hellscope shareholders, in particular us company and advisors being conscious of retail shareholders understanding a transaction. As Jason mentioned at the outset, you know, a deal like this has never really been done before in the Australian market. The Brookfield Prime uh, transaction in 2010 being the, the closest example. So immediately our focus was on disclosure and our view was that it was best to include all of the disclosure in one consolidated disclosure document, which we called a transaction booklet, as opposed to potentially having a separate document for the scheme, a scheme booklet, and then a bidder statement and target statement in respect of the takeover. You'd run into some timing issues though, can't you, Sam, with that? Yeah, so timing is was, was a major issue and essentially... Jason, the issue there is that from announcement of a from a public proposal to make a takeover, the bidder has two months to dispatch its bidder statement. And given the nature of the concurrent transaction, the ASIC review period of a scheme booklet, the court process, printing, etc., and also probably most importantly, the requirement to get an independent expert's report in respect of the scheme, meant that we weren't going to, and when I say we, effectively Brookfield, wasn't going to be able to meet that two-month requirement. So ASIC relief was needed to seek an extension to that period, um, which, you know, based on a number of submissions, was able to be granted. The second aspect, which I might touch on that's interesting in the context of the consolidated transaction booklet, is the approach to dispatch of those booklets to shareholders. Now, the position under schemes is that the court, um, in almost all instances, will grant orders such that, as much as practicable, shareholders who have accept who have elected to receive materials electronically are able to receive those scheme booklets and other materials via email. Unfortunately, there is no such uh, leeway or provision in respect of the dispatch of a bidder statement and target statement, and in fact. The rules in that area you know, haven't been changed in any material sense in 20 years. And in fact, the provision's been in place for 40 years. So, you know, I think, Jason, at that point in time, the world wasn't really contemplating email dispatch and things like that. So something we have to work through. No, they, they weren't. And we were successful in obtaining relief, which is the first time ASIC has, has granted that relief, which certainly saved some trees, saved some money and was added to the efficiency of the process. That's right. So so just to put that in context, there were twenty six or twenty seven thousand yeah. shareholders in Healthscope. 
uh, roughly half of them had asked for documents to be sent by email. So that meant that we saved you know, 13,000 booklets. Um, so it was, it was good. And actually, it was interesting. It was the first time ASIC had granted that. I think they'd been asked for it plenty of times yeah. before, but no one previously had sufficient time to wait for it. But in this case, uh, as we were preparing our booklet, we did have the time and, and eventually got the relief. So that was a good outcome. Um, just coming back to the property deal. Now, you said Northwest had a Ford contract. Um, did that raise any other issues? Yeah, it did, Rod. Um, so we shortly before first court hearing, uh, we had ASIC uh, let us know that they were actually opposing the scheme. And they were opposing the scheme on the basis that uh, they were of the view that Northwest should have been placed into a separate class from other shareholders. And on that basis, uh, health, uh, asked the question as to whether HealthScope was proposing to do so. Uh, that required us to slightly delay the timing of our hearing. Yeah, that's right, Jason. The court first court hearing ended up being pushed back one day and that enabled us to put submissions to the court at the court hearing as to our position on um, the class issue, which essentially was that the nature of the arrangement was separate and outside of the scheme and didn't give rise to any, any class issues such that they should be separated into separate classes. That The class point is very important for um, a couple of reasons. The main one being that, as we mentioned earlier, the you know, BGH Oz Super Consortium had you know, just short of 20% and you know, given voter turnout would be very close to being able to block a scheme um, regardless. But if the Northwest shares to which ASIC alleged there was a class were excluded, then they would certainly be able to do that because it would reduce or would essentially increase the relative voting power of the BGH consortium. So, yeah, I think, look, a good outcome on that, um, you know, detailed submissions from both parties. And in the end, the court was satisfied with our position on the basis that we agreed to tag the votes. And essentially that has the impact of enabling the court to assess at the second court hearing whether if there was a separation into different classes that would have had any impact on the the voter outcome. Yep, that's right. So so we got through court, we got the booklet out, uh, and then at that point uh, Aussie Super then considered their position and they decided they would support the scheme and they would take cash. Uh, that meant that the, uh, the, uh, the possibility of equity uh, fell away, well, realistically it fell away, seeing, seeing there was the only likely person to take it was not going to take it. Um, and we then proceeded to our vote and uh, it was quite well supported. Yeah, that's right, Rod. It was a pretty emphatic uh, vote. We think we had 99.3% of the total votes in favour of the scheme. And about, I think it's about 62% turnout, which was pretty solid. Yeah, it was pretty good. So, so that, that's the Hellscope deal. So what do you think the main takeaways are, guys? What's, what, yeah. what would you think? Yeah. Okay, well, I think to give, to give yours and Sam's and Cam's plug from the last podcast, I think looking at the tools available to target boards, I mean, in this case, we, you know, even absent a major shareholder and, in fact, the largest shareholder initially supporting a proposal, we were able to find a way through with the target to be able to ensure there was competition for for the company and a great outcome for shareholders in terms of value. 
Sam, what do you think? What's your takeaway? I think flexibility is key, Rod, and being able to, as a target board, think strategically and laterally and try and push the boundaries on things a little bit. I mean, we've seen that there wasn't a huge amount of um, you know precedent for the, the transaction structure that was in place here, but I think in the end that you know, two-tier transaction structure was very crucial to delivering value to shareholders. So that's my takeaway. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, I think they're the main lessons from it. Um, well, thanks very much. Now, if any listeners have got any feedback on on this podcast or on the series generally, uh, feel free to send us a message. You can find us on the HSF website. And we look forward to, to hearing anything from you. And you could also, if you want to like the podcast or give us any feedbacks through whatever platform you're listening on, that would also be great. Um, so thank you very much, everyone. Thanks, thanks, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Rod. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Herbert Smith Freehills. For more episodes, please go to our channel on iTunes or SoundCloud and visit our website herbertsmithfreehills.com for more insights relevant to your business.